Welcome to Aina Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial technology sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Aina Insights is brought to you by Aina.ai, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Aina.ai, please visit our website at www.aina.ai. Good morning, folks. Welcome to our new episode of the Titanium Economy podcast series hosted by Aina Insights, where, as you know, we visit with leading executives in the industrial technology industry to explore a wide array of topics. We've talked about macroeconomy, business strategy, technological and operational transformations, and as importantly, what does the future hold for all of us? I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Mr. Steve Smith. He's chairman and president and CEO of Amstead Industries. Amstead is a global diversified manufacturer of industrial components, serving the railroad, automotive, commercial, vehicle, and construction markets. They've been operating since 1962 and have 75 locations globally in 13 countries across six continents, and very importantly, are 100% employee-owned. Steve himself joined Amstead in 2005 as president of the Amstead Rail Division, then went on to become their general counsel in 2007 and was appointed president and CEO in 2017. So welcome, Steve, to our podcast. We are super excited to have you and are looking forward to talking to you about Amstead as well as your personal journey today. Glad to be here. Uh, I really admire what you have done at Fernway and uh, with your Nick and the entire team and the Titanium Economy is a great book. We just had a management retreat for our top 120 people and we made them all read the Titanium Economy before the conference and they all got a lot out of it. So. We appreciate working with you guys. I appreciate your input and thoughts, sir, Steve, and your time as well. So, Steve, uh, maybe get started talking a little bit about Amstead. Could you share a little bit about the company's vision, your strategy over the next five, 10 years? And then as you wake up at their, as a leader every morning, like what are the top two or three things which come to your mind? First of all, I will correct you a little bit. We actually date back to 1902, Gaurav. We became... We officially took the name Amstead Industries in 1962, but we go way back further than that. And in fact, one of the original foundries in Granite City, Illinois, we still operate today for rail components, and that was part of us in 1902. So quite a history. We're unique in that uh, beginning in 1985, and since then, we've been owned by our employees, initially two-thirds of our employees, and then since 1998, 100% by our employees. So we are truly a a private company owned by our employees, which we think is a a great form of capitalism that really works, as we always describe it. And it really creates a spirit of ownership throughout Amstead. And when I look at our priorities, I am a believer that culture eats strategy any day. And, And I think a key to our success has been this ownership culture where people are engaged and invested And they are sharing economically in our success, and it really affects everything we do. And I think it was really bore out during during COVID, too, that uh, people were adaptive in a way that you would have never imagined because they felt the responsibility to make it work. And at a time when the supply chain was uh, very faulty for many, I'm proud to say that we really never failed a customer uh, during this entire time. And and we're in industries, you know, we're a $4 billion company, which is not huge in this day and age, obviously, very much middle market. 
But having said that, uh, the rails wouldn't run, trucks wouldn't get built, many cars wouldn't get built, and many buildings wouldn't be cooled without Amstead Industries. And so uh, we really felt a burden as essential industries to to prevail during COVID. And I'm very proud of the way our team responded and, and produced good results in the midst of it too. And so it's really that ownership culture. You know, looking forward, we really want to build on that. And then, you know, really there's two things that, that we have to do to get right. We have to get the people right, and then we have to get the allocation of capital right. You know, we have four different businesses. Being an ESOP, you do have a, what's called a large repurchase obligation. So our employees, when they reach a certain stage of life, they can put their shares, and that's significant cash obligation that really we has to we have to meet. We always say public companies, they invest in their business, and if they have anything left over, they give it to the shareholders. Uh, we're just the opposite. We invest in our shareholders, and then if we have anything left over, we invest in the business. So we have to manage cash very carefully. Cash is very important. We manage working capital very tightly, and this enables us to uh, continue to invest in our businesses. We're primarily focused on organic growth. We see great opportunities. Um, our evaporative cooling business, Baltimore Aircoil, between data centers and green hydrogen and carbon capture, there's just huge new opportunities out there. And commercial vehicle world, we're expanding there, and we have opportunities in other parts of the world. We've built a good business in China there as well. Automotive, obviously, is a challenge to some extent as that market's changing quickly, but we have technologies that we think are relevant to battery electric vehicles as well. And so our strategy going forward and also fueled by a very strong, steady rail business, which is a good cash flow generator, is to invest in our businesses judiciously, organically, with occasional tack on acquisitions to uh, as, as we can further those growth patterns. And thank you so much for your uh, thoughts there, Steve, and a lot of themes for us to dig deeper into. I think I love the line about culture beating strategy. I might I might copy it <laughs> for, my, for my future uses. But uh, just pulling on one thread, Steve, you talked about resource allocation. Uh, if you look at Amstead, I mean, it's amazing how pervasive you are in terms of every facet of our life, from railroads to building products and all that. We've also seen, I guess, opinions come around how conglomerates work, whether they are the most effective way to kind of get deliver value to both the shareholders and the customers. How do you manage these four divisions which you have? Are there synergies you look for or is it primarily like resource allocation, doing that across these four businesses? What is your thesis on those those topics? We have some very cyclical businesses. You know, North American rail car builds can be as high as 80,000 in the last decade and then as low as 20,000. And to scale large manufacturing businesses to that amount of cyclicality is really, frankly, one of our core capabilities. On the other hand, having four businesses really enables us to temper some of that cyclicality. And so we find the diversification among the four businesses to be very valuable in that regard. And the key thing is looking for growth opportunities. You know, some of our businesses might have the tendency, hey, we produced the most cash this year. We ought to get the most capital investment. But I think we're very clear about that, that no, that doesn't necessarily tie. Maybe that's your cycle. That's your role in life right now to produce the cash. We have a really great growth opportunity over here in one of the other businesses, and that's where we're going to put more of our cash. So it's really important. And as far as whether a conglomerate produces more value, I'm, I'm proud to say that 
we just had a management conference, as I mentioned, and over the last 20 years throughout this century now, we've outperformed every index and all of our peers. And again, that's for our employees. That's not for private equity group. It's not for some amorphous group of outside shareholders. That's the people who are are doing it for us as well, who are benefiting from that. So uh, we think the conglomerate works very well for us, uh, even though that may not be a popular corporate strategy these days. Good to be a North Star on that topic, Steve. So you talked about cyclical businesses. I mean, obviously, we're entering an economic cycle where demand signals are looking weaker. We have seen at least high inflation. Hopefully, it's coming down, as well as interest rates being that high. How have you thought about positioning Amstead for this kind of environment to persist over the next few quarters? Um, any things you've kind of changed out of the norm as, as you kind of looked about Amstead in the next few few years or quarters? I'm glad to say, like some other industrial companies, we are not feeling it yet. You know, we have our antenna up and uh, we're looking for signs. But right now, our markets remain strong and we just had one of our strongest quarters ever. So, but we are obviously aware of all the noise you're reading in the press and elsewhere that there could be a dampening coming in. It all gets down to cash and, and also as we invest in growth, obviously you have to stage that investment judiciously. And if you see a down a downturn coming, you have to be ready to cut back. Our, what, what's, what's so gratifying is that our people now have been through these cycles so many times that they're just pros at it. And, and I always feel I have to remind them, hey, we have to start being careful. And they've already taken steps, you know, and it's just part of the DNA now that um, we have to be able to be profitable in every kind of market. And that means never being late to the table. It's always hard in a big downturn not to be stuck with inventories that are too high. And sure, you know, you owe, everyone has some of that, but we've gotten very good at managing that. And our working capital performance is excellent, even in a downturn. That's incredible to hear. See, one other piece which I find fascinating about Amsterdam, I think you've been pretty vocal about it as well, is your focus on organic growth, driving growth through organic means and not necessarily as much through inorganic means. Any any pointers there as to how have you been able to execute this level of sustained organic growth? And then just a just a commentary on like how do you think about M and A in your in your space? Then like what kind of role does it play in your overall strategy? So we have you know seventeen thousand employees worldwide. We've got forty at corporate, Gaurav. So we don't have some huge development office sitting here figuring out how we're going to grow. We really put that on the businesses and challenge them and and you know, there's just a growth mentality that they all have inculcated in themselves. And when it comes to acquisitions, even our acquisitions generally come as ideas from the businesses. They they observe strategically what a good opportunity is uh, in in their arenas. And we've done a couple in the last couple of years now, and uh, we think they're great opportunities to really diversify a little bit. Uh, one of them really comes with some of the same technologies that we use in our automotive business. It's a chance to take automotive and some of those core skills into a, another more diversified area. And another really takes advantage of some of the trends in cooling as well too. And so, but those both came to us from the businesses and uh, we then supply support and you know the ability to execute a lot of that comes from uh, us at corporate but in general uh, it, it all falls on the businesses we we give them a lot of authority and a lot of accountability you know you, you don't get one without the other 
but it's really part of our culture. It's part of our DNA. So Steve, uh, you talked about technology. So one thesis we had as we were uh, look, writing the book, Titanium Economy, it was that in many ways, it'll be inevitable for industrial companies to adopt technology very proactively, whether it's improving their own operations, whether it's making the products better for customers. Would love to just get your thoughts on how you view the role of technology in Amstead's growth in the future. Are you doing anything different? Are you doing anything at an accelerated pace, given what, all what we're seeing happening around us with AI, chat GPT? How have you thought about technology in your portfolio? Absolutely. I mean, that's been a major change over the last 10 years. It really began with just a focus on innovation and innovation as our culture. And, and that's really spread nicely over, over the last 10 years. And then we began focusing on specific technologies that are applicable to manufacturing, be it additive manufacturing, be it vision systems, be it the Internet of Things, as we've called it, uh, di or digital opportunities. And the factory floors continue to be changed by automation, by new MES systems, and they make us more efficient. And particularly in this inflationary time, we are continually improving our operations, adding more technology. And, you know, even in the case of vision systems, using AI, obviously, as, as a key part of that process. So on the manufacturing side, it's crucial to our, our survival and being able to be maintain high margin businesses to be improving our operations, making them more efficient through technology. One thing we've done, which we really hadn't done until about five years ago, is we had operated in silos to some extent. But we've created councils across our four businesses now on key technologies, bringing the key technologists all together from those businesses. And they love it, first of all. I mean, they just love getting to interact with similarly inclined people across all the businesses. But the learning they share is just outstanding. And we're not reinventing the wheel then on some of these things from one business to the other. And they gen they germinate in one of the businesses, but they spread like wildfire to the other businesses now. And that's the way we've been able to capitalize on what's a decentralized structure, but still get the power of technology sharing. I say the area that's been more difficult, Gaurav, is product tangents and adjacencies and taking we have businesses with very strong market shares in certain markets, and, and there would seem to be digital opportunities in some of those markets that, frankly, relate to the geography we have on a train or a truck or in a car and, and in a cooling system. And, and we've, we've invested quite a bit in pursuing some of those opportunities. We're still very hopeful, but I'll be honest, they don't come as quickly as you'd like. You know, it's a when we make an investment in a new factory, we already have the business book. We can look at the IRR. We know we're going to get payback within two years and what the return is going to be. When you're going into an adjacencies and a new technology, and it's a little more like a venture capital play to some extent where, you know, you're not the development cycle is longer that we're still feeling our way there, you know, of how fast to push and whether we're starting too early, whether we're starting too late in some of these areas. But we do think there's big opportunity there and, and uh, down the road, they will pay off. Yeah, no, it's interesting to see the dichotomy as you put it together. Some are more easier to see returns from and others are taking time. And I think it's kind of dovetails a little bit with one of the topics. I think you talked about the culture and talent at, at Amstead and how folks are more motivated or, or as motivated as they, as they as you need them to be to deliver these results. So obviously, Amstead is 100% employee on uh, Steve. So would love to just get your thoughts on 
I mean, we've seen the positive side of that in there, in, in the culture you kind of built up and the level of ownership and accountability everybody shows. On the balance, are there things which are a little bit more different or difficult being a 100% employee-owned company, which, uh, which may come to your mind? And, and how, should, how do you think about recruiting into the, into the base then? Like how you think about attracting the talent? Because my assumption is retaining them is easier, but how are you like, figuring out who is the right fit for the culture you're going to build at Ampton? Right. Those are great questions. And I will say that as, as a recruiting tool, the ESOP is not as powerful as it is as a, retain, a retention tool. If we get someone for five years and they look at that balance sheet when they're fully vested and they realize, particularly with the stock appreciation we've had, they look at it and say, wow, this is real, you know, and, and I'm not going anywhere. I mean, during the great resignation, we really didn't have any issue at all. We kept all our key people issue on the plant floor sometimes because that's a whole different discussion of labor in America right now. But but certainly among our key people, uh, we didn't have any great resignation at all. But recruiting, you know, it's a little there is a little bit of the ESG, the G part, and it sounds nice even on a recruiting basis. People like the idea that you know they're going to be owners and that it's uh, cooperative and so it does have some value and we emphasize that more and more and and the challenges Gaurav, you know a couple i mean because cash is so important and we have businesses that demand capital investment you really have to manage cash well and does it conceivably slow our growth in some cases can we pursue as many opportunities as we think are out there we have to temper that sometimes now Part of me says that keeps you from making stupid investments too. So uh, there may be some benefit in that as well. But it it probably it, we we like to have steady growth, but not not go to the moon rocket type of growth. It uh, really works in our system. So that's one tempering fact. The other thing I say as we become international, you know, the ESOP is a U.S. structure statutorily, and to replicate that spirit of ownership around the world, we've had to work at ways to do that and. We found other ways to give equity alignment with our leaders around the world as well. But getting that whole balance right where it's sort of a U.S. construct as you become an international company, it's something we've had to work hard at balancing. We think we've got it pretty well. I go into our plants in Mexico and China, and I feel that same spirit of ownership. But we do have to work at that. So, Now, that's, that's great to hear that you're able to replicate it even beyond the, the, the at least 100% ESOP uh, more to hear in the US. So uh, kudos to you and the team. Steve, on, uh, one more question on just uh, Amsterdam and your strategy. You mentioned the ESG element. How, how much is that kind of coming into, as you think about Amsterdam, but you are up to, um, and your teams are up to, how much of that really impacts your decision-making at a day-to-day level? And is it, is it like a, you view that as a positive or a challenge? What would be your perspective on ESG? The answer is probably yes to that. Uh, but <laughs> as far as G, you know, the G, as I said, I think from a governance standpoint, and I, I spend quite a bit time on Capitol Hill supporting ESOPs, and I, I, I say to members of Congress, this is something you've done that really works, you know, and people have skin in the game. They're benefiting not only from the fruits of their labor, but from the fruits of the capital as well. To the Democrats, I say this is almost socialism. To the Republicans, I say this is the ownership society. You know, I think the G part, we are an exceptional story in that regard. The E part, it's both a challenge and an opportunity. There's absolutely no doubt about it. You know, so much of our ability to reduce our 
CO2 emissions is dependent on our sources of energy. And right now we don't have that much control over that. We can try to do a lot on minimization. We can, we've done solar roofs on a couple of our facilities, for example, but that's a small dent, you know, and really you have to look at where you get your electricity from in many cases, and that's going to determine the degree of reduction. So we're, we're working hard. We're very conscious of it as a private company. You know, we don't have some of the same pressures that a public company does in that regard, but it really doesn't matter because our customers do. Our customers want to know what we're doing upstream and our employees care. You know, a lot of our employees care too. So we're very conscious of it. We probably don't have quite the pressure of a public company, but we want to continue improving. We're measuring in a way we never measured before. And in some of our businesses, I mean, Rail, I have to say, almost everything we produce is recycled steel to begin with. And then you're talking about the most energy efficient mode of transportation in the world, probably, and that is rail as well. So there's a real green imprimatur there. We're doing a lot with technology on the truck side, on the commercial vehicle side, where we think we can eliminate the need for diesel engines on refrigerated trailers. And so, you know, we think there's a real market opportunity for us there. We're taking our technology on the automotive side into battery electric vehicles. We're on the Rivian, for example. And uh, so there's an opportunity to contribute there. And then cooling, you know, it used to be we, we advertise evaporative cooling as a way to reduce energy. Now people want to reduce water usage too. And we're coming up with new technologies that use less water, less energy and produce CO2 on the cooling side as well. So there's an opportunity there and there's a challenge there, I'd say. Very helpful for that candid answer. I think also great to, great to see the opportunities come to life in the various examples you gave. So, which is, which is incredible. So Steve, last question on the, on the more industry side. I think one of the theses as we wrote the book was that industrial companies by itself, I think Amster is a great example, fantastic financial record, also driving great innovation. But if you take a step back, they do tend to be a little underappreciated and misunderstood, undervalued, I guess more in cop, like in popular culture. What is your take on, on a thesis like that? Do you, do you feel that? Do you believe that? And then also from just an element of not purely the financial aspect, but the social aspect, like a healthy industrial ecosystem, what does that enable for us for the economy? At least we argue in the book that this is in many ways a, a sector we cannot afford to lose in for a variety of reasons, innovation being one, financial performance being one, but also the social aspect as well. So would love to get your thoughts on how you view that thesis and, and uh, what parts of it make sense to you, what parts of it you don't necessarily agree with. You know, not being publicly traded, Garv, we don't have some of the same pressures about making sure we're properly appreciated in the public market. In fact, in the ESOP structure, overly high multiples, and we're valued quarterly based on comparables that are in the public market. They actually put a little extra strain on the cash management to some extent, actually. So, you know, we can live with a seven multiple, actually, and our the balance of the whole structure works beautifully for us. So. But having said that, I think, indeed, your premise is exactly right. We need to have greater awareness and valuation of the entire industrial sector in this country. And I think it's very dangerous what we've let happen in that regard. And and it really gets down to the employee and the talent base, too. I mean, we need to be challenging people into our very challenging uh, industrial environments now. Manufacturing is not what it was 30, 40 years ago. You need skills coming in. 
And yet, you know, we sort of had the the lesson in our society that everyone has to go to college. College is for everyone. And I think that's a mistake. I think there's many people who could come out of high school or technical schools and find very good careers. We have a crisis with the trades in our country right now. People who can be electricians and plumbers and tool makers. And and there's tremendous opportunities for those people. And our whole educational system and ethos has to really start making people aware of those opportunities and bringing them into businesses like ours. You know, with all the money floating around now with IRA and infrastructure bills, there's a great opportunity to take advantage of that. But, you know, we have to have the people to also fill those facilities as well. And those people have to have basic math and computer and other skills too as well. So it really runs down through our whole society. And so I think the premise of the titanium economy is exactly right. We need a societal focus on how important these manufacturing industries are for our country and for the future. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate your thoughts on that. Maybe not as we come to the end of our discussion, just a couple of personal reflections from you. Um, I think you're one of the rare corporate leaders which probably grew up in the legal profession as well as uh, the corporate corporate ladder. Would love to understand what are the two or three core tenets of your leadership style? Like what were the big experiences or the beliefs you have which, which have translated in your own leadership and then obviously with the culture and the results at Amsterdam? I often say you can lead a lot by questioning. And uh, one thing a lawyer does grow up doing is learning how to question, right? And as I say, we give a lot of authority to our businesses, but I'm with them every month and just spending time and not not berating them, but challenging them with questions, making sure they've thought through strategically what they're doing. And any conclusion they come to is a much better one than one I drive them to. On the other hand, do I want to be part of an active dialogue with them, exploring everything they're doing, thinking it through, helping them think it through, helping them think on the future? And so to some extent, it's it's leading by questioning. And one of my theories is you learn a lot more by listening than you do by talking. And if you listen to your leaders and you listen to your people, you can learn a lot and then you can interact with them meaningfully and and the other thing, people want to feel like they're part of something special. You know, I go back to my days coaching youth softball and baseball. You know, you have to learn you have to learn to meet people where they're at, and then you also have to make them feel they're part of something special and they're aligned. I don't ever want people to be doing things because they feel they have to. I want them to be doing things because they own the company, they want to be doing it, they're proud to be part of it. And they know how we think as a company. They know what our premises are. And so it's really, I I said at the close of our leadership summit, I said, hey, two things. If we get the people right, and then if we get the investments right, if we do those two things, get the people, allocate capital appropriately, we're going to win. I have absolutely no doubt about that. And I just want to make sure that we've always got people who are aligned, who are enthused, who feel they're part of something special. And then that they're making smart decisions, smart investment decisions. And to the extent in my little way, by being a good questioner, I can promote them towards those smart decisions. That's great. So fairly simple. I don't like to pretend I can do more than than they can. I just want to be their, their assistant along the way to make them all better. So 
That was incredibly insightful, Steve. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think leading by questioning and is, is an incredible, I think, really powerful move. So appreciate you sharing that. So Steve, as we come close to, at, the, at the close of this conversation, I uh, want to just ask you any closing thoughts or takeaways as you think about uh, value creation and capturing value in the industrial sectors today? What Anything you'd like to share with our peers or our listeners? All goes back to what you guys have said. I think it's a challenging, dynamic time for industry in America. I think there's going to be opportunities like we can't imagine. And we just have to have a societal attack on it. It goes to our education system, too. And it goes to it goes to the fact that we have probably millions of people who aren't productive right now because they're not educated. What an opportunity. You know, I've even I've even thought if we were teaching trades in our prisons more, for example, could we have second chance citizens who could become productive members of the industrial society as well? So I think there is hope because I think there is more focus on manufacturing and industry now, but we have a long way to go. And, you know, all I can say, it's exciting to be part of a company that makes stuff still. And I think our people all enjoy it. They love it. And if you can make it work, it's very gratifying to be part of an industrial company that's keeping the world going. So, now I appreciate your thoughts, there, Stephen. I, I must say, I think I, I'm honored to be part of this enthusiastic and, uh, and infectious conversation we just had with you. So, thank you so much for your time and your insightful comments. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Gara. Thanks for listening to Ina Insights. Please visit Ina.ai for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial technology sector.